The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Confined in a cage, up against the wall, pressed against the barriers, if you linger in thought, holding back your potential, you will remain mired in fear and frozen in inaction. If, on the other hand, you advance fearlessly and without hesitation, you manifest your power as a competent adept of the way, passing through entanglements and barriers without hindrance to time and season. A great peace is attained. How do you advance fearlessly and without hesitation? A fierce and terrifying band of samurai was riding through the countryside bringing fear and harm wherever they went. As they were approaching one particular town, all the monks in the town's monastery fled, except the abbot. When the band of warriors entered the monastery, they found the abbot sitting at the front of the shrine room in perfect posture. The fierce leader took out his sword and said, Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I am the sort of person who could run you through with my sword without batting an eye? The Zen master responded, And I, sir, am the sort of man who could be run through by a sword without batting an eye. So much of our suffering as individuals and as a society is caused by fear. In fact, according to Buddhism, fear is at the very root of ego and samsara, or suffering. Authentic spirituality is about working with fear from the point of view of the path, the path of the spiritual warrior. How do we walk the path of fear? Fear is not a trivial matter. In many ways, it restricts our lives, it limits our potential, informs all of our choices, and imprisons us. Fear operates both at the conscious level as well as, most of the time, 
the unconscious level. Without a special, without a spiritual practice, we go through life believing we make choices operating from free will, when the reality is that most of the time our motivation, even for those choices we identify as good for us, is fear. Fear also prevents us from living at the level of full self-expression, stopping us from speaking our truth, because we never confront and work with our fear, what we often bring to our lives, especially our relationships, is compromise and alibi. Fear is often what causes people to leave the path of the Dharma, to not take that quintessential step and invest themselves entirely into the work required. The teacher is always encouraging the student to never spare yourself. The student, unaware of their true self, will fight to protect that very source which is creating fear and refuses to live fearlessly. When things start to go deep beyond just the novelty of self-improvement, they encounter fear and say, this path is not for me. Forget Zen. Maybe I'll do hot yoga. <laughs> the essential cause of our suffering and anxiety is ignorance of the nature of reality and craving and clinging to something illusory. That is referred to as ego. And the gasoline in the vehicle of ego is fear. Ego thrives on fear. So unless we figure out the problem of fear, we will never understand or embody any sense of egolessness or selflessness, which alone is the gateway to our freedom and living fearlessly. We have our conscious day-to-day -day fears of a close call, an accident, a bad health diagnosis, but then there is an undercurrent of fear, which is very relevant to practitioners of the path and especially spiritual warriors. The undercurrent of fear lurks behind a lot of our habits and certainly our choices. It is why it is so hard to just sit still or stand still or stand in line, not doing anything in particular without feeling nervous and fidgety. We have a fear of being still. Why do we spin out so many thoughts all the time? We sit and try to be quiet and to quiet the mind, but it just rumbles on and on, churning out masses of thoughts, small and large, pink and yellow, bland and slimy. Why? It is because of this undercurrent of fear. It is as though we have to keep things moving. We have to keep moving. We are always in the pursuit of happiness in the various forms we believe it exists. Even when we find our definition of happiness, eventually we are in pursuit again. We have to keep ourselves distracted at some fundamental level. We have to keep our momentum going because it's pretty scary to think of it stopping. Once we have separation and duality, we have to maintain the momentum. The problem with ego and duality 
is that at some level, we know it's a sham, but we have to keep it all. So part of the undercurrent of fear is the fear of being found out, of being exposed as an imposter, or as Shakespeare referred to us, each of us as actors on the stage of life, who is creating a solid illusion out of thin air. Fear has two extremes. At one extreme, we freeze. We are petrified, literally like a rock. At the other extreme, we panic. We run around like maniacs and our mind goes into hyperdrive. Freeze or panic. Freeze or panic. Fight or flight. The Buddhist view is that fear is ubiquitous. We all have an underlying sense of not being settled, of not being secure. We have an existential feeling of uncertainty and instability, and that makes us very anxious. <coughs> Unfortunately, we usually apply the wrong antidote to this ever-present sense of anxiousness. To allay or mollify that fear, we try to find refuge in accumulating wealth and possessions we're trying to make a big name for ourselves, or do aerobics, or getting a new nose, or whatever. Yet doing these things over and over again does not settle us. In fact, it does the opposite. It exacerbates the very problem we are trying to address. But fear can also be helpful. And I don't mean in the moment of real danger only. Fear may motivate us to try to understand the world and ourselves, and when we do, we will come to appreciate that suffering is caused by a habit of constructing the illusion of an absolute separate self. We go through life being absolute, self-centered, making egocentric, fear-filled choices as if no one else matters, but we can look at that habit and come to learn that it never works. We can develop deep concentration, deep meditation about that, and ultimately liberate ourselves from the experience of constant dissatisfaction, or being alone in the world, or not worthy. How do we find the path through these extremes? How can we truly find the middle path, which for centuries has always led to freedom and living fearlessly. Good evening. Once again, I'd like to begin this evening by creating the context for listening to the teachings, the words that I just shared with you and the rest of the evening. The Dharma is designed for a singular purpose, an exclusive objective, that objective and that singular purpose being the liberation of the being from suffering and its causes. Any attempt to use the teachings for any other purpose, any other reason, is futile because it never works. So we are here tonight to discover the cause of what the Buddha referred to as suffering, which I will talk more about in a moment to discover its cause and its various manifested causes, 
and to discover, as the Buddha wanted to know 2,700 years ago, if there is cessation, what is that? So 2,700 years ago, the Buddha declared, declared to everyone that our life will be filled with suffering. The first noble truth says, life is suffering. But in order to truly understand that truth, we need to understand that he made a clear distinction between pain and what he called suffering. Pain, a pathological experience that takes place in our body, he said is inevitable. There is no avoidance of it. If you're going to have a body, expect pain. The body ages, the body becomes ill, the body eventually dies. And that process of impermanence will involve pain in the body. So unless you are drunk all the time and on drugs, to try to avoid all of that. And even that doesn't work because you have to take the pill again or you have to get the next drink. And somewhere in that space there will be pain. Pain is inevitable, he said. And that was not the topic of his discussion. What he wanted to understand was suffering. He wanted to understand what it was and its causes. While pain we understand to be inevitable, he taught that suffering is optional. He realized that this mental anguish we find ourselves in, whether we are aware of it or not, or as I mentioned in my words earlier, even when we find the thing, the object, or the person we believe will make us happy, eventually, if you are honest enough to take a look at yourself, you find that Eventually, we are in pursuit again. We are never satisfied with our lives as it is. And that dissatisfaction, he said, not only is optional, but that its causes are not what we often think they are. That the cause of that dissatisfaction, that no matter how well things get, we always pursue more or better or different. And this constant, again, uh, barrage of thoughts and worriment and concerns about the future has a clear and specific cause, he said. And the cause of that, he said, in the, in the second noble truth is our ignorance of who we truly are and what this we call life and death really is. The singular aim of Buddhist spirituality, or the spirituality of the spiritual warrior, is to discover the causes of suffering and to eliminate those causes by awakening to reality, by reality sometimes often referred to as Dharma, the reality of the universe. Albert Einstein once said that the reality, scientifically proven outside of Buddhism, is that each of us, without exception, are part of a larger whole, something we call universe. Buddhists call Dharma. Others may call God or Buddha nature. Each of us are part of this whole. And even though ego creates this illusion that we live somehow separate and absolute apart from that whole, the reality or the opposite of that illusion is the fact, 
is the truth. Therefore, the Buddha taught that cessation from suffering ultimately is a function of learning how to live in harmony with the reality each of us are part of. Another way that I might say that is getting with the program. And most of us find ourselves often participating in a self-created program that when we examine it is by nature egocentric about me as if I'm the only one on the planet and my stuff is the only stuff that matters. So 2,700 years ago, the Buddha said, ignorance causes suffering. <coughs> and the primary fruit of our ignorance, the primary fruit, if almost exclusive, which manifests itself in a myriad of ways, in the same way that I often talk about addiction. When I talk about addiction before groups working on addictions in their life, I say to them, there is really only one addiction. And we are all addicts. And that one addiction manifests itself in a myriad of ways, whether it be chemical-based, uh, food, sex, uh, work, whatever. And that one addiction finds itself rooted in one thing and one thing only. The singular and primary fruit of ignorance is fear. Ego deals with ignorance through fear. Fear, then we can say, is a root cause of our dissatisfaction. And if we never confront it and meet the challenge of understanding it and discovering ways to work with it and through it, nothing changes. No matter how much we gain, no matter how much wealth, no matter how many uh, friends, popularity, and all the other various forms that we try to fill our lives up with as an effort and an attempt to fill up that emptiness we feel inside. Ignorance is the cause of suffering, the Buddha said. And in the Third Noble Truth, he says, there is cessation from suffering. And again, by cessation from suffering, he meant, again, that our suffering was optional, that we actually cause our suffering. We may not cause the pain in our lives, but we certainly cause our own suffering. Now, initially, when people often hear those words, they get very insulted and disturbed by it, and so forth. And, you know, like Einstein, I say to you, you know, when he used to teach at Princeton, I tell the story about how the first year students with him, uh, <coughs> he would go into the classroom, and if you've ever been to Princeton, their uh, science classrooms have blackboards all on all the walls. So you walk into an erased blackboard room and start to write a formula. And by the time he was done, the formula would extend around the room. He'd get to the end of the formula, write an equal sign, turn to his students and say, give me the answer. And they would obviously be dumbfounded by the invitation. And he would wait a few moments, letting them rest in their discontentment and so forth and anxiousness and he would say to them the only difference between you and Albert Einstein is that I did the work. Likewise when we hear that we are our own cause of suffering in our life the only difference between you knowing that and I knowing that 
is I've done the work of inquiry. And when we do the work of inquiry through meditation and contemplation, when we really take the time to reflect on the suffering that exists in our lives, we can see that not only we are causing it, but we can understand how we cause it and liberate ourselves from those causes. Fear exists in our lives in two levels of consciousness. Usually we think about it in the first level, when it is conscious, when it is evident. We're driving a car, someone cuts us off, and we become fearful of an accident. We hear that we have some kind of terminal illness, a heart attack, or some kind of cancer. Something real happens in our life that threatens our bodies, and it is a natural, embedded reaction of the body to respond fearfully. This fear, again, Buddhism says, is the good stuff. This is the stuff that keeps us alive, the stuff that gets us out of the way of the tractor trailer barreling down on us, the stuff that motivates us to do something about our lives, to get healthier, to eat better, to take care of ourselves. Likewise, when we witness someone we love and care about in danger, we want to immediately, some of us at least, react fearfully for them and we want to immediately act to protect them. In Buddhism, the practice of protecting people from fearful realities is a quintessential paramita. It, it involves the dana paramita, where we are called to give by caring for those who are either sick or afraid and giving them refuge. So this fear, again, isn't the problem in our life. It functions in a very intelligent way and functions out of, again, that fundamental truth that both Einstein and the Buddha pointed to. The reason why we want to, for example, maybe save someone we love in danger is because we recognize our interconnectedness with them. Certainly as a parent, and if you are a parent you understand this, I can feel my seven-year-old daughter in my body all the time. And when she makes it, I make it. When she doesn't make it, I don't make it. And that is a biological experience for me. I can feel it in my body. Fear also exists at the unconscious level. And the unconscious fear at that level is usually a function of our perceived or perceptions. That is to say, usually that fear at the unconscious level has no reality base to it, no foundation to be afraid of, and functions again entirely in the domain of illusion. That fear is the fear that the Buddha wanted to understand thoroughly and to discover whether or not there was a solution to that. That fear is dangerous for this reason. When you do the inquiry of the mind, when you do the work of understanding, we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, how the mind is operating from moment to moment, what you discover is that the mind does not discriminate between real danger and perceived danger. 
the mind does not discriminate between real danger to the body and perceived danger. The things that we find ourselves worrying about, anxious about, fearful about, such things as other people's approval, uh, fear of failure, and our drive towards success. And we're going to talk about, uh, again, what I mentioned a few moments ago in my reading. We're going to talk about how even our best choices, those choices that we believe are good for us, when you get down to the nitty-gritty of challenging the experience of fear in your life and really inquire into it, you find that even the good choices are motivated by fear. And the problem with that is fear at any level, whether it is towards good choices or you know, perceived fear or real, real fear, when the body is experiencing fear, the brain is releasing chemicals into the body that are designed to work temporarily, such as truck coming at you, fear shows up, gets you out of the way, you get on the other side of the highway, you relax, you calm down, and everything goes back to normal. But when fear is running in this undercurrent, which is usually all the time for most of us, we are killing ourselves. It literally generates a level of energy in the body that causes our physical illnesses, that causes earlier death than maybe, perhaps, would be if it was absent. So, the spiritual warrior knows that real spirituality, authentic spirituality, involves and must include intimacy with fear. By that I mean coming to know it inside and out. Becoming friends with it and most especially training in the ancient traditions of Zazen and mindfulness where we are aware of it and that awareness is informed then by what the Buddhists called as the highest solution, the greatest solution, the most powerful solution to all of our suffering. And that is, as mentioned in the Heart Sutra, prana or prajna paramita. Prajna meaning wisdom. The cultivation of wisdom is the singular objective of all the practices. We meditate to cultivate wisdom because meditation Real meditation, the meditation of the Buddha, was designed to inquire into suffering and its causes. Our suffering, my personal suffering, and global suffering, the suffering in the world. The Buddha, when asked what he taught, he said, I teach four things. There is suffering, there is a cause for suffering, there is a solution to the suffering, and that solution is the following. And he dedicated his life to that singular purpose, to understand suffering. Therefore, it follows that all of the teachings manifested in the teaching of Dharma, as the teacher or master does in this case, in the practice of meditation, in the role that precepts or uh, the moral and ethical life plays, in the etiquette of the Zendo, every part of Zen spirituality is designed for the singular purpose of becoming intimate with the cause and causes of our suffering, that we become aware and understand how they are operating in us, 
and then to resolve that suffering, to liberate ourselves from that suffering um, through the means that has been well honed and proven to work for centuries now. One of the uh, obstacles to achieving this, just as the Buddha made a distinction between suffering and pain, I want to talk a little bit about something that came up for me in my own contemplation about this topic tonight. And that is, I want to talk about the difference between gratification and contentment. Contentment is the word used in Buddhism for real happiness. Most people, when they talk about wanting to be happy, are talking about feeling better. For them, happiness is this emotional state that informs their body and makes them happy and excited and so forth. And again, when you do the work of the spiritual warrior, when you inquire into the nature of emotions and feelings, again you realize that the Buddhist teachings that everything is of the nature of impermanence exists for those as well. All of my feelings and emotions are impermanent. I can feel happy now, but that happiness is not necessarily going to last. That, that happiness, that kind of happiness, again is impermanent and is conditional. By that I mean whatever caused me to be happy in that moment were caused by certain present conditions. Remove those conditions, the happiness goes with it. This is not the happiness that Buddhism talks about. The happiness that Buddhism talks about is synonymous with the word freedom as I define it. And I define freedom in this way. Real freedom is the ability to remain content no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. Real freedom, like real happiness, is contentment. Contentment is the ability to remain fearless and committed and confident and strong despite the conditions that are present in the moment. We may feel, because again, fear is embedded in this body as a natural response to threat. We may feel, it's just like my talk I gave on Friday at the library in, in um, Tom's River when we talked about forgiveness, where people were constantly stuck on the power of forgiveness was that they would always come back to, but I don't feel like that. And what I said to them repeatedly is the same thing, applies here as well. Forgiveness exists at a level apart from my feeling and emotion. Its power exists at a higher level. Feelings and emotions exist at a low level. My feelings and emotions, first of all, if you've been listening, are unreliable. Because why? All feelings and emotions are first conditional. The only reason why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling at the moment is because there are certain conditions present. And when you look further into that, it's a very personal thing. What might make me happy may not be what makes you happy. So that conditional experience of happiness is also part of our ignorance. It's not real. It's not sustainable. 
the happiness that Buddhism talks about, this contentment, is about the ability to remain, if you will, not shook by life's circumstances and situations, and the ability to meet them with confidence and assurance, no matter what my body's feeling about it. So, you know, I may feel frightened, I may feel suspicious or whatever it is that's coming up for me, but I can act. It's very much like when I talk about uh, my vow. My vow is to always offer loving kindness and compassion. Am I perfect at that? No. But that is my vow, and that is my objective and my purpose in everything I'm doing. And often you've heard me say, there are days in my life when I must muster up all the compassion in the universe for some people. And I do. I may not feel like it, but I do. It's very much like His Holiness the Dalai Lama once said, I talk to the garbage man and the president of the university in the same way. In the same way. To live at that level is to live fearlessly. To live fearlessly is to have the experience of fear possibly going on in your body, but not having it control you. That's the distinction. Now, we need to identify the presence of contentment as opposed to what most of us often mistake it. By mistaken, I mean this. I see it in students of Zen and other spiritual schools every day. Here it is. When a baby is crying and you put a bottle in its mouth, it has been gratified. It is not the evidence of contentment. Remove the bottle and you find that. Okay? When the baby is lying in its crib and gazing, when you, you've seen this with babies, I'm sure, you know, I would watch my daughter for hours on end, just lay there in her crib and having this interaction with, with space. That is contentment. That is what we mean by contentment. Even when things around babies and in those moments going on crazy. You know, when I, was, when I grew up as a kid and someone had a newborn baby in the house, you were told, shh, shh, you don't want to disturb the baby. Later on, science taught, no, you don't want to do that. You want to just go on with life as it is. They have a natural, inherent ability to find contentment no matter what is going on around them. So way too often, Zen students mistaken gratification with contentment. I don't care who you are. If you come to this monastery like tomorrow morning and you meditate with us, and you just got cut off in the road and you found yourself anxious and upset with that driver and so forth, and you come in here and you apply the techniques, eventually you're going to calm down and feel peaceful. It don't mean nothing. Okay? It just means we've changed the conditions. What most people who have experienced this mean when they talk about enlightenment or insight are transformational experiences. 
The evidence of growth, for example, is change. Okay? So if you want to measure how your work, how your practice is working for you, you measure it by the evidence of growth. Something changes within you. you this is why Satori, as it is called in Japanese Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, is a powerful moment when the student has it, the teacher sees it, as well as the student, because there is a, there is a clear change in that person. You know. So it's important that we understand that, that we stop erring and mistaking gratification with contentment. The contentment that the Buddha talked about when he said, there is cessation from suffering, he meant us to understand that in the moment that that does happen for us, everything changes. Our relationship with fear shifts. And it no longer has the power it used to have prior to that moment. Now that happens gradually for some people. It happens instantaneous for some people. But whether it happens gradually or instantaneous in one moment, it is an evolutionary event. That is to say, it continues to grow and the individual continues to change and become more stronger and more confident and more fearless in the world. Authentic spirituality is procedural. It is a process. It's not like you get to a destination and then it's all over and you float three feet off the ground the rest of your life. It is something that, again, as you've heard me quote, the ancient Zen masters, something that is like a day of lying and pilfering, meditation will not cure. And when the student asks what happens after enlightenment, the masters will always reply, 10,000 more hours of meditation. Spirituality is a training. And when you get serious about the fear in your life, when you get serious about that, you understand why. So like Chikyo once said to me in his process as a student, I've come to realize that the ego ain't going down easy. And he's right. And he's right. And there's no one in this room better than a teacher to understand that. It's fun to have students. <laughs> you believe that? I've got a Brooklyn Bridge to sell you tonight. No matter who's standing on it. Any questions? Hi. Yeah, hi. Um, I always thought of desire as being more at the base of dissatisfaction than, than fear. What motivates the desire is fear. Our pursuit of more, better, and different is our fear of not enough, so we pursue. So our desiring is being motivated by fear. And our fear is rooted in our ignorance. So whatever that desire is, if we are desiring somewhere, somehow, we have this perception that what is so now for us is not enough. And when the body, when the body interprets not enough, it seeks out more. It seeks out better. It seeks out different. Likewise, when the mind perceives, and that perception is always rooted in ignorance,
because again the Buddha taught that at all times at every moment all beings are Buddha we are enough we were born enough and that that, that reality that quality never changes we never what the Buddha said nothing to gain and nothing is ever lost this reality is so so desiring is the is the way in which fear expresses itself so when I'm craving something other than now that is a function of fear for example not all desires are not good for us the desire to liberate ourselves from suffering is a good desire but that desire just like the desire for another drink which may be harmful to us both are rooted in fear so as I said earlier Fear is also helpful in our lives. The work of the spiritual warrior is to cultivate the wisdom to know which is which. Because the mind that is experiencing fear in that moment doesn't discriminate between real danger and perceived danger. The warrior must do that for him or herself. Don't work with it too much. <laughs> Any other questions? So when the Buddha talks about craving and desiring, he is talking about an expression of fear. What is, what all of our desires is rooted in, all of our dissatisfaction is rooted in, is the fear of not enough. So we find ourselves on this endless wheel of more, better, and different. When you take a look at our pursuits, when you take a look at our desires, they fall in either the category of wanting more of something we may already have, wanting something better than what we already have, and when that doesn't work for us, we go to different. And when we get different, we go back to more and then we go back to better, and then we go back to different. But all of that is rooted in our ignorance of who and what we truly are. When we know that everything we need to be content is already within us, that we were born, that the, that the things we pursue for our own contentment is within us, inherent to us, then where is there to go? You know, where are you going? What is there to pursue? You already have it. And that's the ignorance the Buddha pointed to. We are ignorant of what we already possess. Hakuin Zenji says to us in the Song of Zazen, we wander from dark path to dark path, endlessly seeking, when our reality is we are born a child of a wealthy family, and we are always standing in the middle of a cool body of water, crying out, I thirst. If we awaken to our reality and operate from there, all of that changes. All of that changes. So a simple exercise that I could give you would be to ask you, tomorrow morning, what would your life look like tomorrow if you woke up, whether you felt it that way, whether you're thoughts and belief systems supported it or not, 
but you operated from a place in your relationships and your interactions with others and the choices you make, you operated from a place that you already have and are enough. What would your life look like? I will tell you what it would look like. No matter what you do tomorrow, you would find contentment and fulfillment. What would your relationships look like if you really chose and embraced and attended to loving those in your life now, rather than constantly, whether you are aware of it or not, and we do it with everybody. We do it with everybody. The moment we look at them and we don't like the way they're behaving, we've done it. Rather than looking for somebody more who may bring you more, somebody better, or somebody different. What would your relationships look like? If you really, as we were told in the 60s, love the one you're with. If you really did that, love the life you have. Take care of it. If you really did that, what would your life look like? What would your life look like and feel like and what, what would you experience called your life if you spent as much energy helping others as you do in trying to help yourself for more, better, and different? There is a literal energy change. There is a literal energy change that takes place in the human experience when we move from looking for the solutions to our life out here to embracing them as already within us. A literal energy change that takes place. Try it. You'll find out. You'll find out. The simple act, and yet the most complex and difficult thing for people to do, of taking to a cushion or a chair and becoming still for a while, is evidence of that. When you finally surrender to embracing this space, this moment, and just being present to it, that's where your experience of peace comes from. But if we're always chasing after, going to all the wrong places to find what we already have, that is where your experience of suffering comes from. The most difficult thing for any Zen student to do, and until they do it, nothing improves, is to drop anchor. In both modern Japan and ancient Japan at the same time, when you come before the Roshi and ask to be part of his community of students and monks, and you're not prepared to make a vow to stay until you master this or achieve what we call achieve enlightenment, you're not accepted. I won't even spend a moment with you. We'll not even look at you. the most difficult thing and yet the most quintessential thing. To transform how fear manages us is the same formula. How do we learn to live fearlessly? By entering into those conditions that frighten us. And occupying that space 
until we find out for ourselves the most liberating lesson we had as children. Anyone tell me what that was? The most liberating lesson we had as children. The boogeyman doesn't exist. <laughs> the boogeyman does not exist. Except where? Then and now. In your head. And the way we learned that lesson was confronting the dark. And the way we confronted the dark is we had to sit with it or sleep with it in our bedrooms until we learned that lesson. That masterful practice is what we call Zen training. Without which, nothing improves. You can sit in meditation to the cows come home, if your meditation is not skillfully designed to meet your enemy, fear, and confront how it operates in your life, not only in the profound ways, but in those subtle undercurrents, and to become friends with it and experience it fully, nothing has been achieved and nothing will change. And the way we normally do it has proven not to work. The way we normally do it is similar to that embedded, inherent, physical survival mechanism of the body. We either fight it or we flee. Or there's a third. Most people aren't even aware of that. We become paralyzed <coughs> by it. And the only reason why we become paralyzed by it is because we believe the boogeyman is real. Or, the other side of that is, we have yet to confront the singular truth that cuts through all of this and achieves it instantly, embracing that I am going to die. That my existence is as temporary as every other existence and then learning how to live my life accordingly. Because as you often hear me say, that's not the bad news. The bad news is, you and I haven't a clue when, yet we live as if we're going to live forever. And that's why we suffer. Take care of business is a teaching that you often hear me say. Zen is taking care of business. If not now, when? When do you think you're going to get the chance to do that? You see? If you don't liberate yourself now, when are you going to do it? If our habitual lifestyles are any evidence, we never get around to doing it because our fear, and this is also rooted in fear, I don't have enough time. I don't fear like it. In order to understand this teaching fully, you need to embrace the possibility, which is also the probability, the fact-based, the evidence is there, that even our finest choices have added to fear. 
So fear is constantly directing us. The work of the spiritual warrior is to cultivate the wisdom to understand the good fear from the bad fear and how to manage that from moment to moment with awareness that comes from the training that only meditation or zazen and again living a lifestyle whereby we're not running, we're not fleeing, we're not fighting, we're not becoming paralyzed. We are entering, I like the way Pema Chodron says, step into the fire. We are leaning into it, as she says. Whenever we are afraid, we have this wonderful, powerful tool called Zazen, that when practiced consistently and regularly, informs our inherent ability Again, we go back to the life of a small child. They aren't afraid of water. They aren't afraid of climbing heights. They aren't afraid of throwing their bodies into unbelievable things that as adults we look at and can't even imagine thinking of doing. You see? We need to recapture that intelligence. With wisdom, we know how to do it skillfully as adults. But if we're not cultivating the wisdom on the mats, and by making those changes in our reactional lifestyles, our reactional lifestyles, our habitual ways of living, if we don't change our habits and our reactions to things, nothing changes. So our habitual reaction to fear is to either avoid it, avert it, run away from it, or fight it. Same. We need to change that model to a different model that the Buddha offered us 2,700 years ago, where we sit with our fearful experience, we learn from it, we experience all the emotions involved with it until they disappear. Because there is both a Buddhist teaching and a quantum physics law that says, Whatever you resist, persists. And if you persist it long enough, you become. You become. And whatever you fully experience, disappears. Disappears. So that is why the practice of meditation or zazen is so quintessential. That is why the lifestyle of the spiritual warrior, which is so different from the way we normally live, is so necessary. Because we have years and years of habitual behaviors rooted in unreasonable fears and worriments about ourselves and our life and our world that are habitual reactions to stimulus, the same stimulus. You know, when, <coughs> when they talk about pushing your buttons and they say you're so predictable, they're right. You know as well as I do, the same stuff shakes you up yet today. But if you never confront it and learn how to react to that stimulus, to react to those triggers in a different way, nothing changes. Because our reactions are habitual, and the only way to correct bad habits is to replace them with good habits.
Any questions? So, what did you hear? And if you give me a Zen response, I have a big <laughs> stick over here. <laughs> what did you hear? And I'm involving you in the discussion tonight because this is the quintessential issue of your life. If you never confront the challenges of making friends with fear, nothing changes. Nothing. It's the same thing over and over again, just saying it in different ways. Same thing over and over again, just saying it in different ways. So I heard that you said sitting with your fear, being so quintessential to achieving any kind of contentment or progress with mm -hmm. it. So how do you know? There's so many fears might maybe pop up through the day. How do you really kind of hone in on what might be really your yeah. block? Yeah, so let me clarify what I said. Like addictions, there is really only one fear. You've been fearing it from the moment you were born, and that is death, okay? And death manifests itself in our lives in different ways. We lose a job. Somebody leaves us in a relationship. Uh, we have to move to a different address. So these are our little deaths that we are afraid of. We fear change. We see it as a kind of death or dying when it happens. The practice is not to sit with those individual stories about what we're afraid of, but the experience. So for example, we'll do an exercise shortly where through mindfulness, we become aware of where fear is in our body. Where is it setting? Some of us feel it in our shoulders, some of us feel it in our guts, some of us, you know, feel it all over our bodies. It's learning, it's training yourself to sit with that experience. And by just sitting with it, really being with it, without running the story in your head, without scaring yourself with what could happen, that story, whatever the story may be. When you fully experience the experience we identify as fear, it disappears. When it disappears, it's gone, gone, forever gone. And something else surfaces, and a space is created, and that space creates the experience of newness. So it's not about, you know, writing down a list of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 different things I'm afraid of and checking them off like my fear list, if you will. It's about the experience because it is the experience that the mind is reacting to, okay? And when you learn how to do this skillfully, what perpetuates the fear is the running of the story over and over and over again. In real zazen, 
you are detaching from the story, from the story you're going on in the moment, and settling in your body where the experience is happening. Okay? So it's kind of like you're giving your attention where you need to give your attention. The solution is not in the story. The mind will always rationalize your reasons to be afraid. The story is designed for fear, not for liberation from fear. So, you know, when 9-11 uh, happened, I made it a point to go up to New York City like so many people who visit the site, and I had an opportunity to talk to some of the uh, first responders, and since then, over the years, to other first responders, and <coughs> the topic of courage came up. You know, the courage it took, and often when I talk about this, I say to people, we have this Hollywood idea that the person that runs into the burning building ha is not afraid. No, the hero is the person who has the experience of being afraid, but acts anyway. And somehow, just like in the model I've given you of Zazen, sitting with your fear, just in at running into the fire, leaning into it, confronting the fear and doing what's necessary, liberates them from fear running them. Just that action. While the rest of us stand outside, scared of the fire. Okay? okay. And the only way those guys, and you know, I was a fireman when I was a kid, a volunteer fireman, the only way you learn how to fight the fire is by engaging it. <laughs> you can't read about it. You know, you can read about it, but somewhere you've got to put the hose together and you've got to step into the fire and know how much you've got to engage it. And it's like everything else. Life is like riding a bicycle. You can never learn how to ride a bike by reading about it. That's why all these self-help books you're reading, toss them. Just step in. Step in. Eventually, you've got to put the book down and step in. The only, uh, you know, in, in Japan, well, there is one book that is necessary, and it's in the other room. <laughs> but even that book, the title says it all, Kokoro, which is the Japanese word for the heart within, which is where the Japanese point to as the only true knowledge. They say in the East, we think knowledge exists here. True knowledge exists here. And what they mean is, the stuff that really informs us and strengthens us and guides us in, in the right direction is experiential. It's our knowledge we gain through experience. So again, you know, 2,700 years ago, the Buddha masterfully designed this technique called Zazen, whereby we came to know everything we already know by experiencing it. And that's why I, the, the mo I was talking with a friend of mine who's also a teacher up in New York. The other day we had breakfast together and we both you know, agreed that the single most difficult lesson for him, for me, and every teacher we've ever known is to convince everybody else that the most important thing you have to do is sit. That's the most important thing you have to do and engage into this practice for the rest of your life. Because again, if I never in, encounter the boogeyman and get to know him, I will never know he doesn't exist.
Is that helpful? Thank you. Thank you. You know, Roosevelt said, we have only fear to fear. <clears throat> hmm. I think it took me many years to really understand that there was, whatever was coming up had at its root fear. I, I, because, you know, there would, there would be anger, and then I learned to look below the anger, and what was driving that was always fear. And so um, I think, like, that's, that's the uh, default where I go now when I'm not sore off base or unbalanced or whatever. I know there's something that's, that, that there's fear driving it mm -hmm. and not yeah. something else. Yeah. Yeah. So I just go right there. What, yeah. what is it that's got you panicked? Yeah. What is it you're fearing? Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. First, and that's the first step. You need to identify the fear. You need to identify that that's what's driving me at the moment. That's what's informing my moment right now. I need to identify that. In a few moments, we'll do the practice of what you do with that identification. But I think it's also important that we not forget that fear informs all of our moments. Okay? All of our moments. And it is prajna paramita, the perfection of wisdom that comes out of this practice, out of this training, out of sitting regularly and looking into the experience of fear. It is prajna paramita that gives us the knowledge we need to identify it and to work with it. Okay? So, you know, often the Buddha is referred to also as a physician and a scientist. What he gave us was a means toward navigating through an existence of impermanence that naturally generates fear. That naturally generates fear. Fear is not the enemy. How we hold it is the enemy. Again, fear protects your body. Without it, you would walk in front of cars, you would not take care of yourself, and so forth. So let me just hold, uh, stay there for a moment, taking care of yourself as another example. If fear is motivating us to change our lifestyle, to eat better and exercise, here's the distinction. And, and I can give you a personal example that happened for me after two heart attacks and almost died from pneumonia three times and a recent procedure they just did on my heart. When I came out of that hospital, like I had been most of my life, well, my adult life, because it wasn't until my mid-40s that I uh, started to put on extra weight and, you know, and not so conscious and of diet and other things. But when I came out of the hospital recently, I was really clear, really clear, enough was enough. Or as my friend DePaul would say, enough is enough and too much is plenty. And I made the declaration, declaration that I was going to live a lifestyle that would help me be alive every moment of my life for my daughter, for my students, for my monastic work, and so forth. Had nothing to do with how I looked. And that's the distinction. Uh, and ever since, it's working, and I'm not doing anything with it to work, except staying true to that declaration. 
So what I'm saying to you is that the way we identify the good stuff from the bad stuff is, again, what is our intention, for example? If most people's diets don't work because it's not rooted in a real intention to live life fully, it's rooted usually in looking better, getting into this dress, being able to go on the beach, and all of that's about the fear about what other people think about me. But when it's rooted in caring for the temple, if you want to call it that, the entity you occupy, your body, so that you can, for example, in Zen Mealtime Sutras, we say, we accept this food in order that we may continue to practice for our own enlightenment and the enlightenment of all the many beings. So what we eat, how we eat, is about that. And that is what we call the appropriate way of eating a meal. Your life is the supreme meal. Dogen talked about this when he said, prepare the supreme meal. And he meant your life. And the intention to live your life fully so that it may be a benefit for others, driven by whatever the fear is, and so forth, is where is an example of how we'll call that the good fear, the good stuff. The bad stuff is again where we are constantly striving to look better and feel better so that others will like us and be attracted to us and so forth. And that's a, a, what I believe to be a primary reason why most diets don't work. Because what do we do after we look good? We go back to eating the old way. You know so we need. So when you talk to people who really work with this therapy of nutrition and all of that, they will tell you, again, you need to change your relationship with food. Instead of seeing food, again, as another means to eliminating fear in your life, see it as a means of keeping the body strong and nurtured so that you can be alive and fully participate. Any questions on that? Don't follow the diet and don't think of it, oh, I want to reach this goal. Of course, some people do need to lose weight or whatever for different reasons to be healthy. But they said don't look at it as a diet because most people don't make that goal. Like you said, if they make that goal, they go right back to whatever they were, they were doing before. But make it more so lifestyle changes. Yeah. Don't follow the diet. Yeah. Yeah. You need to permanently change yeah. the way you and that lifestyle changes, that lifestyle change that you are pointing to is a spiritual essence because it has to do with the same reason all of these spiritual practices we do. Living in harmony with reality. Eating the ways that they teach you to eat is how the body really operates at its optimum level. Living spiritually as we learn in Zen Buddhism is how the world, how the universe operates in reality. You see? So again, uh, as you just said, when, when we see it as a lifestyle change, we're talking about lifestyle changes here. How do I, what has been my habitual reaction to fear? And we need to quit that and uh, substitute a lifestyle reaction 
that is in harmony with the real nature of the universe. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? hearing the word goal being used a lot, it, it, I, I feel like our society, we're so about always reaching goals, reach a career goal, reach a diet goal, reach a relationship goal, that it's just constantly, if you're not reaching this goal, then you need to reach the next goal. And I'm wondering if you could speak to possibly how that in itself is kind of like a societal <coughs> fear that's kind of mm -hmm. perhaps drummed into all of us that we, we if we're not reaching a goal then we're somehow right. failing or not good enough or right. something to that right. effect. Yeah. And my answer to that is something I've been saying for 41 years. The society that we find ourselves living in is not conducive for freedom. Okay? Mm -hmm. So the bottom line is those cultural lessons are not good for you. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's the bottom line. Because, as you say, it's all oriented to more, better, and different. Mm -hmm. If you have more of this, you'll be a better person. Mm -hmm. You see? If you, if you behave better, you'll be more liked. If you change and become a different person, then you really got the prize, mm -hmm. and so forth. You know, if you look at all, um, you know, I say to people, if everyone in the world was to, were to get the Dharma right now, world economies would collapse because the economies of the world are dependent mm -hmm. of you being afraid of never having enough. You know, how many of the, I ask people, how many of those things do you really need? You know, you can only drive one car at a time. You can only live in one house at a time. You can only wear one pair of pants at a time. You know, how many of them do you really need? And again, our purchasing, what we could change the world if we become more mindful how much of our purchasing is rooted in fear. Mm -hmm. We buy stuff we don't need. Do you know what the number two industry in America is today? Storage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Storage. The number two industry in America, the storage. Be we, we, buy these, we buy these spaces and store stuff that we've collected over the years that we probably never will use again. So uh, our purchasing, you know, when people, you know, even Gandhi said this. Gandhi said, if you want to change the world, the next time your toaster breaks, fix it instead of buying a new one. Okay? So again, and again, and again, uh, our, our culture and society we live in is not conducive for enlightenment. So we need to stop looking towards that as a source. And that is all fear-oriented, because again, it's designed to make you afraid you don't ever have enough. You know? I mean, again, and, if, and again, if you take the time to inquire into that uh, technique, the, the new and improved is just the carton. The packaging has been improved. You open it up, you're getting less than you had before. <laughs> okay? So when they say new and improved, they're talking about we hired a new marketer that came up with a new design. That's what's been improved. 
The product's the same old product. I mean, Cheerios is being made today the same way it's always been made, okay? And so many of these products that we purchase because they're new and improved, you know. Uh, you know, my mother washed the laundry in an old washing machine where she scrubbed it by hand and rolled it, you know, rolled the thing to squeeze out the water and used, uh, you know, borax, I think it was in those days. And my clothes were just as clean then as they are today, you know. So, uh, yeah, uh, our culture, our society we live in is a reflection of our own inner fear and is, a, is dependent upon you remaining afraid that you don't have more, you don't have enough, you're not good enough, and you need to change again, you know what I'm So one of the, the first, and again, here's another thing so difficult for people who enter the spiritual path, want the spiritual results, but fight doing. The first practice in all spiritual, true authentic spirituality is the practice of renunciation. There's a reason why every teacher from every tradition talks about renouncing the world and the things of the world. And fear is embedded in our society and our culture to manage and control. Where's the freedom in that? You know, the first thing you need to get, get ready for and embrace and, you know, suck it up and get ready for the punch is that you're, you're not operating from free will. You'd like to think you are, but you're not. You know, when you take a look at how you will purchase something that you don't need or how you continue to put into your bodies what is harmful to you, how you will continue to react in ways and not take the steps to change that, where's your free will? You know That's the first thing. So we renounce the way of the world because the way of the world is killing us. I mean, you don't need a Buddhist monk to tell you that. Just look at it. <laughs> okay? Thank you. Anyone else? Roshi, I just wanted to say that uh, one of the most contented periods of time in my life was when I was uh, in the army in the desert and I had less crap. And I think one of the most difficult things was coming back and being told that I need this and I need that. And that was one of the most difficult experiences I've ever had. And just from a non-Buddhist standpoint, I learned that years ago. But well, I will tell you that in 1974, after my military experience and my tour in Vietnam, I could have either become a monk or stayed in the military. So I get it. <laughs> I get it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I second that. Several years I had my total belongings fit in a couple bag I fit in I didn't get stayed behind absolutely you carry it and you go mm -hmm. I thought it was great simplicity now that works when you're talking about possessions and the stuff we carry in and that's what we're talking about the possessions start to become less meaningful when the stuff we're carrying inside becomes less meaningful I was going to say, my wife thinks I still dress the same. <laughs> oh, she's right. <laughs> <laughs> I never said she was wrong. You were there. <laughs> Talking about fear. <laughs> Thank you, Casey. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Um, what do you say to somebody who, uh, I'm talking about 
fears and they've lost their job in the recession and uh, lost their house and, and uh, really gone through birth through all their savings and are pretty pretty down and out destitute. Um, you know, maybe there's a Maslow hierarchy of needs here or something when you uh, I think when you <coughs> it's easier to be less fearful I think when you're making enough money to meet your needs, then if you're really totally down and out, uh, what do you tell to somebody who's kind of down and out and whose fear about their future is mm -hmm. pretty real? Yeah. Been there, done that, and and when you ask me what would I tell somebody who's down and out, I can't tell you that until I meet them. Okay? So there's nothing about these teachings that are uniform and textbook. Every situation a true teacher knows. You know, there's a saying, the Zen master knows what the student needs when they knock on the Dukasan door, before <laughs> they even come in and sit down and talk. Okay? And each of those knocks are as uniquely different as that student is and their needs. So the individual person, I would have, you know, I, I can't answer that question for you. If we're talking in general, the thought that came to mind while you were describing that is, my uh, seven-year-old daughter as an infant when she wore diapers couldn't understand everybody's concern about her sitting in poop. <laughs> okay? So I often say to people, again, another example, when I was burping her and she threw up on me, she never was embarrassed by that. Mm -hmm. And if someone were to release gas in this room, we'd go to great lengths to make sure we think it was that person and not me. You see? <laughs> or like I say to people, like I say to adults usually, my daughter had no problem pooping in her pants. You poop in your pants. I have to go tell you to clean up because you're more concerned about me finding out you pooped in your pants. You see? So the, the metaphor there is, again, in those moments, back to, uh, what's your name? Camille. Back to Camille's question. Our fear in those moments are societal and culturally learned. Because again, we have this image that somehow the wealth, the house, and all of that affirms us. Mm -hmm. And we see that as a failure rather than just as a consequence of life. I mean, there are people all over this world, and I make it a point to think of them every day, living in squalid conditions that we can't even begin to imagine in our poorest conditions here in America, and yet are able to play the instrument and sing and dance at night, you know what I'm Are able to find some kind of contentment in a cardboard home where the stream of sewer is running out front of that home. I've seen that and what have you. So there, this is not about denial. When bad things happen, it, it sucks. Bad things suck. They suck for the enlightened and the unenlightened. <laughs> okay. All right? You know, it's like I tell people, I'm, I used to go to uh, funerals regularly and then stop because every time the Zen master walked in, everybody wanted to know the answer to, to this. And finally I just said, batten down your hatches, 
this sucks. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it sucks whether you believe in reincarnation or whether you believe in life after death. When you lose someone you love, it hurts like hell, if you will. So bad things when they happen are very bad. And when they happen to people, we, you know, the first thing we do, and you know, recently I gave hospice to a 27-year-old uh, girl dying from cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. And you know, her family called the Buddhist uh, monk in anticipation that again I was going to bring some secret. And I spent the time with her just holding her hand and just being with her. Uh, because that's what was really going on. So, again, uh, I have a problem with people who have a uniform answer for, you know, tragedy. Tragedy is tragic. And uh, what I try to do is to, you know, not try to bring some fixed answer to the solution, but discover what's needed in that moment. But again, let's say that person comes here one day and says, now I want to learn how to live my life in a way that that doesn't ever affect me like that again. <clears throat> then is when I tell them, the only reason why you felt so bad about that is because that was the only thing you knew. Okay. I say, what if, and not what if, but Buddhism teaches the day you were born, a Buddha was born. And that quality never changes. That the you know, penthouse on the tower is no different than the person in the street. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why we think differently about that is back to Camille's sharing, because our society has set that up in our heads to be the goal, okay? There are people that have, there are indigenous communities in the world, still today living in jungles, mm -hmm. that none of, you drive in there with a, you know, a Mercedes Benz, they want to know if they can eat it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm a member of the Atlas Poor in this country. <laughs> okay. All right, is that helpful? Yeah, could you um, just repeat your definition of freedom again? Freedom is the ability that I believe is inherent to all of us to remain confident and content no matter the circumstance or situation. Okay? And to remain true to my vow. You know, like I said a, mo uh, a little while ago this evening, there are days in my life where I must muster up all the compassion in the universe for some people. And I do it, because I said I would. Have I been perfect in that? No. The next step is to clean up my mess. And I talk about that. When you mess up, clean up your mess. That's all that's necessary. No judgment, no criticism. You messed up, you clean up your mess. But, always strive to live by what you say, okay? So freedom is the ability that even though the whole world is coming at me, you know, like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree on the eve of his enlightenment, when you look at all of the, you know, drawings of that and depictions of that, you know, the arrows were coming at him from Mata and the temptations were coming at him and he remained perfectly still in his, in his meditation. Uh, that's freedom, that's freedom. <clears throat> it occurs to me also that someone who's down and out, there, there's basically a change that has happened. And whether or not they have accepted it is whether or not yet they're suffering. 
that's a, yeah. a lot of it. I mean, and all of us deal with change in our life. Yeah. And if we fight it when it is inevitable and don't accept it, I think that's when we suffer more. Yeah, yeah. This um, Zen story of the Zen master and the samurai that I started out with is about that. Uh, it's not about the Zen master and being powerful enough to resist. When it's a koan that is used in the Rinzai tradition, that story. And it's about just that. The master is saying, I can't, I'm not a swordsman. I can't stop you. So that power to not blink my eye is embracing what's up. That's the real message of that story. Most people, when they hear that story, think, oh, well, this is about how the master was powerful and fearless and, you know. No, it was a fun, the, the message of the story, the moral of the story is he embraced the fact that the guy's going to cut his head off and, you know, what could he do? It's over. Gone. Gone forever gone. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, most of our fear grips us when we don't embrace the circumstance and situation. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Anyone else? If you are sitting on cushions or on chairs and you want to stand up and shake it off, take your seats back, can you put them away? And take your seats back. And we're going to do a brief exercise in the little uh, time we have left, which (coughs) is about, again, identifying the technique and how to apply it every day of your life, and in those moments in the course of your day when stress and anxiety, which is another term for fear. I often say to people, when you go to the doctor and you're in the doctor's office and he says to you, there's nothing pathological wrong with you, uh, so you're, you're suffering from stress and anxiety. Those are code words in the medical world for afraid. Because he knows if he says to you, you know what, you're scared to death. Uh, you won't pay the bill or come back. So, so stress and anxiety are code words for fear. And so if you'll take your seat. And just take a moment, whether you're in a chair, if you're sitting on a chair, make sure both your feet are planted, that you're sitting back in your seat and you feel really grounded to where you feel the earth supporting you. If you're sitting on the cushion likewise, find your seat in a way on the cushion that again you feel the earth supporting you. You feel, you know, grounded, you're not wobbling front or back, side to side in any way. And once you've done that, close your eyes. And just take a moment to experience the experience of that posture, that seat, that location, this space. And you can continue to keep your eyes closed and hear my voice and just follow instructions. So if you've been listening, it's about becoming intimate with what's so in the moment. So we begin our meditation by becoming aware of the experience in our bodies going on right now. 
hypothetically speaking, right now you are stressed and fearful and worrisome about something in your life. Just notice that story running in your head. Totally objective. Just notice that right now I'm thinking about whatever it is. My mind is running this story. And take a deep breath and hold. Exhale. And just relax. Continue to be aware of the presence of the story running in your head. Objectively notice the experience in your body going on, where it is going on. So hypothetically speaking, let's say that you find your belly is rumbling and the fear is resting in your abdomen and that part of your torso. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Aware of where the fear is manifesting in your body, the next time you take a deep breath, imagine your breath will actually breathe into that area. So using your mind, take a deep breath as if you're breathing, directing that breath downward into your abdomen surrounding the fear. Hold it for a moment. Exhale and release your grip on the fear. By becoming aware of the fear manifesting in our body and where it is manifesting, we use the breath to breathe into that space. We hold for a moment as if we are, you know, gripping up, ready to take that punch, if you will. We're ready to run. When we exhale, we're releasing that energy and relaxing into the experience, wherever it is in our body. So your breathing in is awareness. Your breathing out is release. Continue to breathe, continue to sit, and notice your experience. Okay, so take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale, relax, and open your eyes. Okay, so, believe it or not, even I find myself worrying about something. Not every day, occasionally. When I do, <coughs> again, if I wake up in the morning worried about my daughter or worried about something that has to be done that day, and I find that stress manifesting in my body, 
when I come into the Zendo for the early dawn sitting, my work is to again settle into that experience, and that is detach from the story. You do not want to engage the story. You just simply notice the story and notice its quality, its fearsomeness, its, uh, you know, its stressfulness, whatever that may be. You just notice that there's a story running in your head and you bring your awareness to your body. Do not engage the story. Do not indulge the story. We're just noticing that there's this story running in our head about how terrible things are going to be if, or whatever the story may be. Then we bring our attention to where we're feeling, actually experiencing the fear. And for me, it's always in, in, in the gut. Fear sets in my gut. That's why I've always had digestive issues and what have you. So fear sets in my gut and I prepare myself to meditate, but with an intention to direct my breathing into that area and from that area. And again, the key is the inner breath is awareness. My mind is on the experience. It's not the story. The experience that the story is generating. You know that. You know that you don't feel anything without a thought. So if you want to know why you're feeling what you're feeling, take a look at what you're thinking. Okay? But we don't want to focus on the story because when we focus on the story, the story has an energy stronger than us. It'll pull us in and now we're engaged in the story. You know, and we're thinking about the story rather than the experience that the story is generating. So when you practice this <coughs> every day where you become aware of your thoughts when you take your seat and you settle down into your body and continue to breathe in and breathe out, you are creating a mental experience very similar to a photograph that the mind and the brain takes of that experience. Why is that important to know and why is that uh, essential? When we talk about mindfulness off the cushion, when we talk about you're at work and suddenly that experience shows up in one form or another, that mental experience functions as a place of refuge in those moments. When you've trained in this as long as I have, Something comes up. I used to say to people years ago, uh, stress and fear would knock me over and kick me, kick the crap out of me before I even knew what to do. Today I can see it coming 10 miles away. So that when it actually takes its energy in my body, I can go there, whether on the cushion or working on the grounds or taking care of my daughter. I use that as an example because that's my current experience. You know, when we have to get to school on time, I have to drive her 30 minutes to Morristown to school when she's with me. And so we've got to be out of certain time and so forth. And like all seven-year-olds, they don't care about any of that. <laughs> okay? And we're rushing to get out, and I can feel the stress in me to get out the door. I stop. I breathe in. I breathe into where that's happening, and I release it, and then I act with her. And that ensures that my action is loving and kind, generous and patient with her, and it's a kind of release. So again, we train <coughs> on the cushion, meditating, and our meditation includes first, 
an awareness of what is so right now for me. What is going on in mental formations? Is there a story that I'm indulging? Am I stuck in? Is the story fearful, worrisome, stressful? If it is, where is that manifesting in the body? Once I identify where it's manifested in the body, my breath becomes a means of, again, entering that space where the experience is happening and a kind of surrounding of that experience. And the exhale is a release of my grip on that. Letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. When you train in that way, it's what we call fully experiencing an experience. When you fully experience any experience, what does it do? Disappears. Thank you. <laughs> Disappears. Disappears. Whenever you fully experience an experience, it disappears. That daily and regular visit to the cushion or chair for the intention to meditate creates a mental, a memory if you will, a kind of photographic experience that becomes a refuge for you. So that in the course of the day, when things happen and you can't come back to the zendo or go to your meditation room or sit down, <coughs> you can immediately use the same technique on the cushion to meet the stress and the anxiety at that moment. And you will find that just by simply breathing in to wherever that is and breathing out. For me, one or two breaths work today. That's come after years and years of training to be able to identify that and to respond to it that way rather than that way. Any questions? Well, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so, a couple announcements that I'm required to make. And that is, uh, on the first Saturday in May, we have a powerful retreat planned for the environmentally conscious person. It's called the Natural World Retreat that will be led by Emyo and Daiko, who's not here tonight. And it's intended, again, to address the question how to be spiritually engaged in what's happening to our Mother Earth throughout the world. And included in the day will be uh, talks that Emil is qualified to give. Uh, he has been involved in this topic for many years as a career. And <coughs> also, what is the name of the video? Renewal. Renewal, which is a wonderful, powerful video of how the faith-based traditions and other traditions are involved today in addressing climate change and the offense against Mother Nature. So come and spend the day. Uh, there will be meditation as well, practices, and we will conclude the day later that night with a Japanese tea ceremony, mm -hmm. which uh, is appropriate for the topic. So that is May 7th. May 7th. Thank you, everyone. Tomorrow morning, come on back. Tonight we talked about it. So tonight we talked the talk. Tomorrow we walk the walk. And that's where the real stuff comes from. Uh, between 9 and 11, we'll be here for the uh, Sunday morning Zazen. Next week, Sacred Space. And then we come back the following week and do it all over again. Like, like you said, same message, different way. Do it all over again. The endless circle of life. Without the uh, music and Elton John. <laughs> Thank you for the privilege of being with you today.
ever innumerable all beings are, I vow to love them all. However inexhaustible desires are, I vow to extinguish them all. However immeasurable the truth is, I vow to master it. However endless the way is, I vow to follow it. 